0: Uh, today, we'll be continuing our sermon series in the book of Exodus. In Exodus, uh, we've titled this sermon series uh, Set Free to Live Free. And so, as we'll be joining in chapter 21 today, so chapter 21, I believe if you have a house Bible, it's on page 62 or just anywhere around that area. Uh, we'll be going through four chapters today, uh, chapter 21 all the way to 24. Uh, we won't be reading everything word for word, but we'll be jumping around, so keep your hand on chapter 21. We'll start there in a, in a little bit. But just kind of to refresh our memories, in the first half of Exodus, as we have we've been here, we've been going through the story of the people of Israel and how God rescued them from Egypt, and he used miraculous miracles like the 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and uh, providing them with manna and water and protecting them from the enemies and how God set Israel free. But then as Rave preached last week and as we are now entering into the kind of the second half of Exodus, we're seeing now how the Israelites are to live free. They've been set free. How are you now to live free? And so now God gives them the Ten Commandments as Rafe shared last week. And today we're going to be talking about God's laws and Those are the applications from the commandments. And so um, we're going to jump right into that. But to kind of start off our time, I want to make a a statement of what God's laws is. And this is going to kind of be the summary of our time here together in this time. And so you'll see it behind me, God's laws in these chapters reveal God's character and define how sinful humanity can have a relationship with the perfect God. Let me just read it again. God's laws reveal God's character and define how sinful humanity can have a relationship with the perfect God. And today I'm going to show you how that is true from our text in three different ways. Number one, the law reveals the character of a holy, just, and loving God. The law establishes a covenant relationship with his people. And number three, the law establish, or the law exposes the vast separation between us and God. So before we jump in, Let me pray for our time. God, we thank you again for the opportunity to dig into your word, God. Um, God, there's a lot of uh, content in these four chapters, but as um, we go through it together, as as you give your law to your people and as we figure out what that means for us, God, just reveal more of who you are through this time, God. Whatever is of you, may it stick, and whatever is not of me, may it just be forgotten, God. And so may all this that we do in this time, God, be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, about a year ago, I had convinced my wife that we needed a Google Home. Okay? If you guys know what a Google Home is, it's a, a smart speaker like Alexa. Um, and simply by a voice command, you can command it to do a lot of different things. You can command it to play music, command it to call an Uber, to turn on your lights, to answer a question. And I was looking online and it said that there are over a few hundred commands you can give to your Google Home. And the list actually continues to grow. So I asked myself, and I wondered, you know, having this Google Home for like a year or so now, I wonder how much my Google Home knows about me, since I talk to it almost every single day. Well, it probably knows that I have a lot of questions, especially about parenting. I have a 10-month-old, and so I ask it questions like, what can a baby eat or not eat? What do you do when the baby throws up or if they aren't sleeping? When can babies finally watch themselves? And just, you know, typical parenting kind of questions, right? It also probably knows that uh, I'm a Christian and I I love uh, Hillsong music because I tell it to play Hillsong music almost all the time before before I get ready for the day. It also knows that I love to cook, that I ask for recipes, that I like sports, that I ask it to play the news and current events. And it definitely knows that I'm probably impatient because I get angry whenever it says to me, after I ask it a question, I'm sorry, I don't understand, which if you have one, it's not uncommon for Google Home to tell you that. I'm pretty sure my Google Home probably knows more about me than any of you in this room. I mean, I speak to it every day because of the sheer amount of words that I have commanded to speak to it. Whenever we ask a question or give a command, it communicates something about us and reveals who we are to the person that hears us. You learn about your friends or your coworkers or your spouse, not by just looking at them or reading their resume, you learn about them and you see their character by the words that come out of their mouths, by the content of their words. And if you hear enough words from a single person, it begins to paint a picture of who they are. It reveals their character. So as we enter into these few chapters, there's a telling of God's laws. Just like when we speak, when God speaks his words, his laws, his commandments, it does more than just give Israel a task list of what to do and what not to do. It reveals God's character. And so my first point, the law reveals the character of a holy, just, and loving God. You know, now through chapter 21, 22, and parts of 23, there are these Old Testament laws here, which are called the covenant code, Our case laws, which are specific ways the Israelites are supposed to follow the Ten Commandments in practical application. They're very specific to the cultural content of that time, and you can see behind me there's a huge table of them with many different areas. I don't have time to go through every single one of them, but I want to just take three of them and just show... What is the heart that is being communicated behind these laws? They all may not be applicable for us today, right now, in 21st century America, but what is the heart that God is communicating through these laws? So let's look at the first one. If you have your Bibles, chapter 21, verse 1, uh, you can turn there with me and look with me. I'm going to read the first six verses here. It reads, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever." Now, when we read this, these first laws, uh, it's kind of maybe confusing or odd for us because when we, as 21st century Americans, because when we think of slavery, we kind of jump to our uh, history of slavery, where it's chattel slavery, where uh, people were unjustly kidnapped from a different continent and literally brought here as a country to be slaves. This, in this text, is most likely not talking about that kind of slavery. In this text, it most closely resembles Bond servanthood, where people would willingly bond themselves to, to families for the purpose of work and provision and payment. It was not a forced type of slavery; it was voluntary, kind of like servanthood. You see, if you watch like The Downton Abbey, for example. You know, this was very different than how the nations around Israel treated slaves. Egyptians and the other nations they didn't have any laws for slaves. What they what they would do is they would kidnap ethnic groups. They would. They would keep them for life. They would punish them and they would not pay them. But we see in God's laws, the first thing he does is he gives them laws about how to treat your workers and your servants. And he says, and he gives them very just ways that once they earn their freedom, that you should let them free. And he also allows them to know that when they, uh, if they want to become part of your family forever, that there is a way to do that. There is so much more context and complexity of the issue of slavery in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but for us, I want us to kind of understand what is the law showing? What is the, the character of God within this law? And in this law, God is showing his heart for justice. That in the rest of chapter 21 and part of 22... God outlines other laws that are just ways to handle conflicts and different restitution issues amongst Israelites, but also amongst people outside of Israel. The heart of this law is justice. Let's look at another law. Let's go to Exodus 22 in verse 18. And let's go to another example and see what God says here. Chapter 22, verse 18 through 20. It reads, You shall not permit a sorceress to live, Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Now, you know, in our country, we don't have, in a democracy, we don't have capital punishment for spiritual crimes. Um, But for Israel, they were a theocracy, ruled by God. And so these commands were very much, and these laws were very much uh, made sense in that time. But underneath each one of these three laws, these were religious practices that were practiced amongst the Egyptians and other nations around Israel. For for the first one, you shall not permit a sorceress to live, sorcery or witchcraft or fortune-telling was a way the other nations used to appease or to worship their gods. Uh, the next one, bestiality, was actually kind of strangely a way for them to... Uh, appeased a fertility god for more animals or more, uh, more children or just more crops. And then the last one, sacrifices to idols, was another way. Within their polyistic religion, many, many gods, they would try to do their best to appease and satisfy other gods so that the gods could give them what they wanted. God did not want that. What do these laws show about God's character? So much so that if you did any of these, you would be punished by death that God is a holy God, that he has set apart. Any of these acts was a direct opposition against God and bringing in unclean, defiling practices against God's holy presence and his holy people, which points back again to the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The heart of this law and and similar ones after it is God's holiness. Let's look at one more law here. And it's in Exodus chapter 22 verse 21 through 23. That's actually the next verse right after that one I just went over. And it says this, "You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry." You know, these these laws were given to Israel because they allowed them how to interact with others, how they should treat their neighbor. Because remember, they were sojourners and they were those who were being in slavery in Egypt. And so God is saying, as they you have been treated in those circumstances, how would you have liked to be treated when you were in that position? And so God flips it and says, you are to love them as you would have liked to be loved. So in these ways, God begins to show out that to his heart of love for his people that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And so here God is showing that in his law that his heart beats for love. Right? So over and over again these laws from chapter 21, 22 and 23 they give instructions and in specific circumstances on how to be like God, how, how, to, how to be like Him, how to be loving like Him, how to be just like Him, how to be holy like Him. This is what the law was doing. So for us, we, we shouldn't just ignore these case laws then. We shouldn't ignore because they don't make any sense within our culture. But when we read and understand the heartbeat of God's laws, as Rafe pointed out last week, just like a shadow being cast from afar, the shadow points to a fuller, In truer substance, a character of who God is, who is holy, just, and loving. God reveals his character through his law. Now, let's look at what happens then after he gives his law. So after we see chapter 21, 22, 23 of all the laws given, what then happens now in chapter 24? So if you can just turn your Bible a page or scroll over to chapter 24, we're going to read a few verses here starting from verse 3. So chapter 24, verse 3. It says this, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words." Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. What is going on here in this chapter? As some commentators even say that this chapter is one of the most important chapters here in Exodus a covenant relationship is being established. A covenant relationship. Which then leads me to my second point. The law establishes a covenant relationship with God and his people. In chapter 24, Moses has just told the Israelites all the words and the rules which refer to the Ten Commandments and the laws. And the Israelites, we see twice in this this passage, both in verse 3 and in verse 7, say with one voice, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do and be obedient. The Israelites are confirming their covenant relationship as the people of God by agreeing to God's word and God's laws. And so then, as they agree, Moses throws blood onto the altar and onto his people, signifying that this covenant is being established by blood. That it is a matter of life and death. And then at the end, we see they celebrate this covenant relationship with the meal between Israel and God. Because God is just, holy, and loving, the covenant must be based on God's word, God's laws. In order for a relationship with God, they have to meet God's standards. You know, for some of you, though, this may seem a little bit odd. Why does Israel have to obey certain laws to have a relationship? With God? Why can't they just have a relationship? Well, let's take a wedding ceremony, for example. During a wedding, some of you have been in one or have seen one. What is your favorite part of the wedding? Is it looking at the bride when she comes down the aisle? Is it looking at the husband to see his reaction when the bride comes down the aisle? Is it the dancing? Is it celebrating with family and friends, the food, the pictures, the dressing up? We all have lots of things we love about weddings. But for me, my favorite part of the wedding is actually the exchanging of vows. I know, I'm super sentimental, so I, I, I like the vow exchanging part. But when you hear those vows being exchanged, just let me just read um, a, very, a very familiar words to many of you. I take thee, your, your wife or your husband, to be my wedded husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part, this is my solemn vow. Aren't those words just powerful? Don't, don't they just convey a, some emotion and commitment and, and sacrifice and faithfulness? Doesn't that just kind of make your heart flutter a little bit and get a little teary-eyed? You know, these covenant vows to the husband and the wife that no matter what life throws at them that they will love each other and commit to one another. And they make that vow, not just to each other, but they make that to the, the, all, the people who are witnessing their wedding ceremony, but also to God himself. But then, for, for, in a similar kind of way, God's words and law also serve as the vows that establish the relationship between Israel and God. Though this is not an equal party type of covenant, this is a covenant made between God who is holy and perfect. And so he's the one who establishes and writes out the vows. He's the one that makes the conditions for them. And so then if Israel perfectly obeys God's laws, their vows, if they do that, God promises to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. God also tells them that they would, he will would defeat any enemy in their way and that he will bless them from generations to generations if they obey his words and his laws. So for us as Christians, when we decide to obey the heart of God's laws, we are also desiring to be into a covenantal relationship with our God. Just like when a husband and wife make their vows, it separates them from any other man or woman that could be in a relationship that can be in a covenant relationship with them. So when we obey God's laws and choose to make to be in relationship with him, that also says that we do not want to be a part of any other God, any other idol or thing on this earth. Our commitment is on God alone. God establishes the covenant relationship with his people. God's laws establish the covenant relationship with his people. You know, but the question is, could Israel really keep the entirety of God's laws perfectly? Do you know what happens eight chapters after chapter 24? In under 40 days, we get the episode of the golden calf, where if you, if you, if you know that story, Israel literally breaks almost every single one of the Ten Commandments and God's law in that instance. After such a beautiful ceremony of saying we will do all the Lord has commanded us and having a covenant meal in under 40 days Israel breaks it and disobeys God and breaks the covenant relationship that God had initiated on their behalf. But what about us? Can we keep the entirety of God's commands and laws in Scripture, let alone in the book of Exodus? Well, have you, have you been angry with someone before? Have you lusted after a man or a woman? Have you called someone a fool? Have you thought you were better than someone, gossiped, lied, stolen something? Have you loved God with your whole heart and your neighbor as yourself every single moment of your life? probably not. The purpose of the law is, yes, to reveal God's character, and yes, to establish the covenant relationship, but it also leads me to my third point. The law exposes the vast separation between us and God. If you go to chapter 24 of our text, the last two verses in verse 17 through 18, um, you, you, you see this. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Israel had just made a covenant with God and it was sprinkled on with blood. But notice that Israel does not go up into the mountain into the presence of God. Only Moses does. Why? Because Israel was still people who had sin in their hearts. For all of humanity, even for us today, the distance between God who is on top of the mountain, who is holy, who is just, who is loving, and for us, at the bottom of the mountain, that length is, lar- is, is wider, is higher than the universe. It's, it's a chasm that we cannot even fathom the distance of. Because in every single one of us, sin lives in us. It's like these change that grip our heart, and no matter how hard we wanna try to obey God's law, to live for him, to do what he wants us to do, to be in a covenant relationship with him, we can't do it. It is impossible for us to obey God's law perfectly, and the law exposes the sin within us. No one could do it, except one, except one person. 1,500 years After this time, the hope of Israel and for us is that we would not need to go up the mountain, but that God and Jesus Christ would come down to us. He knew that if He knew that we couldn't keep this covenant relationship, that over history, Israel would fall time and time and time again. And so, Jesus would need to come down, He would wrap Himself fully as human as man. But unlike us, He would be blameless. He would not sin. He would perfectly obey God's law. But then in order to bridge the chasm that separated us from God, it would cost him his own life, his precious blood that was shed on the cross. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 926, but now he, being Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So just as Moses has sprinkled blood on the people of Israel to, to make the covenant of old, Jesus Christ, by the shedding of his blood, sprinkles his blood on all of us for those who believe so that our sins could be forgiven and that we could enter into a new covenant relationship with him. We can enter into a covenant relationship with God, not based on our obedience to the law, but by trusting in Jesus Christ and in his blood. You know, just listen to the, the the words of Jeremiah as he looks forward to this account. He was not a witness to this, but he looked toward us and he knew it was gonna happen. He says this: the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel, which includes us after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The good news is that we are no longer under the law of church. But now, because of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, it is by faith, through grace, that we enter into this new covenant with God. And for those who believe, God promises that God's perfect laws are written on our hearts, not by our own efforts, but by the Holy Spirit living in each one of us for those who believe. Church, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the good news of Scripture. But a question I have for us as we kind of begin to wrap up a little bit, Do we really believe this good news? Do we pursue God with the gospel-transformed type of relationship that he desires of us? You know, let me just share with you uh, a current example of of two individuals trying to live out uh, a relationship with God in, in, in an interesting kind of way. You know, a popular show seen by maybe some of you is called The Bachelorette, or The Bachelor is the other side of it. I don't know if some of you watched it, or maybe a significant other kind of forced the other to watch it. Um, I don't know. But it's, it's a, the show, is, it's, it's been around for a while, 15th 15 se- 15 season, um, but in this season, an interesting kind of dynamic and dialogue happened between Hannah Brown, who is The Bachelorette, and one of the contestants named Luke. And so Luke is uh, a vocal Christian on the show, and he uh, talks to Hannah, and he says, Hannah, like, I, I, I'm in love with, love with you, but I want a wife that believes in the biblical view of sex and marriage, that you have to wait for sex until marriage. And so he shared that with her. But when Hannah heard that, she was deeply offended. Because she said that, you know, throughout the show that I've had actual relations with some of the contestants on the show, but you know, I know that God doesn't judge. He, he loves me and his grace is, is enough for me. So then on the show, Luke and Hannah get into this heated argument on who is right or wrong. Hannah calls out Luke's pride, saying that she feels like the woman caught in adultery, and she feels that Luke is one of the Pharisees with one of the stones in his hand, ready to throw it at her. Eventually, Hannah and Luke split up, and Luke is sent home. But this feud continues on Twitter. Luke tweets this to Hannah, and I quote, The difference is in how we view sin and respond to sin. I'm weeping at mine, and you're laughing at yours. All sin stings. My heart hurts for the both of us. Then she's like, nah, you're not getting the last word here. I'm going to tweet back. And she tweets back this. Time and time again, Jesus loved and ate with sinners who laughed. And time and time again, he rebuked saints that judged. Where do you fall, Luke? And this keeps going back and forth, back and forth. And then eventually people around the country on social media chime in too. And they say, Luke, you're such a hypocrite. You are so unloving. And then the hand on they say, you are wrong. You sinned. Confess your sins. As you hear this debate or this dispute or argument, whatever you want to call it, what is going through your mind right now? Are, do you feel yourself kind of leaning towards one side or the other? For all of us in the church as Christians, we have a tendency to fall into one of these two camps if we're not careful. On one hand, we may be legalistic like Luke, that sin is wrong. No matter how you feel, you just have to obey. But then there's, people, there's like folks that are maybe like Hannah, who emphasizes grace and freedom that it's okay if we sin or mess up or do this. God's grace is sufficient. He can forgive me. Though they are partially right, they are both wrong. If you take either one by themselves, we end up not pursuing a relationship with God. We are merely treating God as a religious transaction. For example, how many times have you viewed your relationship with God as a checklist of do's and don'ts? Do this, do your devotionals, go to church on Sundays, volunteer, give in church. The don'ts, don't lie, don't look at pornography, don't be angry, don't murder, don't kill. Like those things, too, matter. And so then when you complete that list, you're like, oh, I, I did all this, I did all that. I, I completed my list. My relationship with God is on point. It's 100% complete. If, if we lean that way, which I know that personally I have a tendency to do that, that's not a relationship with God. God's laws, yes, they are important and they should be obeyed. But God doesn't want you to make a list for him. to. God doesn't, want to make, God doesn't want you to complete a list for him. He wants you to be in a relationship with him, an intimate relationship with him. How would you feel if your spouse or your children or your best friend treated you as a checklist? You would be offended. You would feel like a project, wouldn't you? On the flip side... For Hannah and for those who feel that great God's grace and freedom are, are great, how many times have we viewed our relationship with God as a vending machine that spits out grace and forgiveness whenever we want it? You know, God says in his word, don't, don't sleep with my, my boyfriend or girlfriend or our make sure that I, I, you know, that I don't take money or I don't have idols, and make sure that I make disciples of all nations and evangelize and, and proclaim the gospel to others, but yet you say, you know, God, I don't feel like doing those things. Those are all good and all, like, you know, I, I might mess up here and there, but God, I, I believe your grace saved and is it sufficient enough. If you lean that way, that is still not a relationship. God's grace is indeed sufficient. He will forgive and understand the things that you go to. But God doesn't want you to treat him like a vending machine of love and grace that whenever you want it, you can come to him. God wants to have a relationship with you that has boundaries and has expectations. Because again, if you have a spouse or a friend and they treat you within a way where you tell them what to do or you ask them to do something but they never do what you want them to do and you break their promises and what you ask of them, how would you feel towards them? That person will lose your trust, your respect, and that person will hurt you deeply if they keep doing that. God is not a rule book or laws to follow. God is not a vending machine of grace and love whenever we want it. He is a holy, just, and loving God who is relational. And so he asks us, just like how he asked all the Israelites in Exodus, I am giving you my words. I am giving you my laws. And I am eventually giving you my one and only son to die on the cross for you so that you can intimately know me. God wants to know all of us, his children. But to be honest, so many of us are so busy. We're so distracted. Or we just rely on these quick fix solutions to know God. But church, If you spend three minutes a day during a devotional or just come to church for 90 minutes and expect us to know an amazing, powerful, intimate God, that's not going to work. Throughout scripture, God is telling me, God is telling us, I am not a transactional religion. You can't just come, get something, and go, I want a relationship with my people. I want to spend quality time with you. Church, we, we need to do a better job of leaving our, our selfish desires, our, our schedules, our, our legalism, our the ways that we view freedom. We need to do a better job of listening to God's voice. We need to do a better job of praying, of seeing and reading and meditating on his word. That's why for South Loop, I'm excited about the, the praise and worship nights. I'm excited about prayer meetings because we as a people of God need to know our God. You know, Park's mission is to know God and make him known. In order to make him known, we need to know who God is. We don't need to know more about God. We need to know God in a relationship. And this happens through many different ways. And I think for all of us here today, that's going to look differently. It's going to maybe look more time in God's word. Maybe it is time in prayer, individually or corporately. You know, I'm a big advocate for taking solitude retreats to get away from the city, from distractions, and just spend time with God in nature, journaling, praying, reading, and whatever I was taking a walk, whatever we need to do to spend time with God. And church, I just want to close with this. Um, it's, a, it's a quote from a well-known theologian and pastor named J.I. Packer uh, to just remind us that though we have many different ways that we can know God, he, he calls us to do this. And I quote, it says, How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. What is meditation? Meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and ways and purposes and promises of God. It is an activity of holy thought, consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eye of God, by the help of God, as a means of communion with God. And it, is, and it is, as we enter more and more deeply into this existence of being humbled and exalted, that our knowledge of God increases. And with it, our peace, our strength, and our joy. God help us, then, to put our knowledge about God to this use, that we may all in truth know the Lord. Let me pray. God, we want to thank you that your word is an invitation into a relationship with the holy, just, and loving God. And God, we pray that as we come before you, as we go about our weeks, as we desire to know you, even through your laws, God, that we may enter into this relationship, that we may take time with you, God. Forgive us for looking at other things that distract or busy us, but God, help us to know intimately our Lord, our Savior, and our loving Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.